think for a minute what your life would be like if you'd gotten everything that you'd ever wanted to this point. Think about what your life would be like if every plan that you had ever made worked out exactly according to your desires and according to your roadmap. Think about what your life would be like if every goal that you had set for yourself you were able to achieve. Initially, we might think that, you know, that's a, a pretty good life. I, I wouldn't mind that, right? We would get everything that we would want. But if you really step back and started to think about every goal, every plan, every desire you've ever had. I mean, think back to junior high, just for example, or high school or college. And think about the, the ideas, the dreams, the goals that you had for yourself. My guess is you're in a, a far different place right now than you were when you were dreaming about what you wanted to do when you were younger or the goals that you had set for yourself coming out of college, or maybe uh, even 5, 10, 15 years ago. We have to come to realize that if, if we really got everything that we would, would want in our lives, that our lives probably would look a lot like this at that point in time. It'd be a disaster. Because the, the bottom line is, we really don't know what's best for us when it all boils down. We think we do, but contrary to the sentiments of the poet Henley, we, we make lousy captains of our souls and masters of our fate. Our wisdom is finite by the very fact that we're created, that we've been made, that we have been formed, that we've been fashioned, and we've been fashioned with limitations, and that means that we don't know what's best. We can't see what's ahead. We don't have the ability to know the end from the beginning like the God that we serve. When we trust in human wisdom for these things, what we've done is we've pl placed our trust in a house of cards rather than in the granite fortress and stronghold of an omniscient and sovereign God. In 2 Samuel 17, we're going to see God display the superiority of his wisdom over human wisdom, over earthly wisdom. We're going to see God's wisdom unfold in the sovereign details of his plan for David and his followers. And we're going to see what happens to somebody when they put their entire trust and confidence and hope and identity in human wisdom and human power. See, 2 Samuel 17 clearly demonstrates that God's wisdom ultimately trumps the wisdom and efforts of men. God's wisdom always trumps the wisdom and efforts of men. Coming off of chapter 16, you might recall from our time last time with, with Kellen that you had David on the run at this point, and you had Ahithophel, and you had Absalom, and then you had this guy now that's worked his way into the inner circle named Hushai. And at the end of chapter 16, Ahithophel was counseling David, which is what he was known for. He was known for his wisdom and his counsel and his expertise. And he told, or not David, Absalom, he told Absalom, you know what, David's gone. You need to now go and sleep with his concubines publicly in the sight of all of Israel so that they understand that, that you're the man, that you have officially made this claim to the throne and it will add humiliation and shame to your father who's already on the run. And so that's exactly what Absalom does. And it's a fulfillment of the, uh, the prediction and the prophecy that God had provided of the, the consequences for David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But after he does that for Ahithophel, as we're going to see here in chapter 17, that wasn't enough. Ahithophel wanted more for Absalom. He wanted Absalom to go even further than just publicly humiliating his father, driving him out from Jerusalem, taking the throne, taking the palace, taking the people, taking the power, taking the momentum. For Ahithophel, that wasn't enough. He thought, you know what, Absalom, in order to be completely secure, we need to put an end to David. And that's where our text picks up in verse 1. 
It says, moreover, more than this, more than sleeping with the concubines, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes to home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel. So Ahithophel, again, wastes no time. He says, let me go tonight. Give me 12,000 men. And I'm going to go and I'm going to pursue David while he's still vulnerable, while he's on the run, while he doesn't know exactly what's going on. Let's put an end to this now. And it says in verse 4 that this advice seemed good to Absalom and seemed good to the elders of Israel. And if you look down at verse 14 of chapter 17, the author, the narrator, actually even tells us that this advice was good that Ahithophel had given. From a, a, an earthly perspective, from a military strategy point of view, from a, a wisdom point of view, this was good advice that Ahithophel was providing to Absalom. But then we come to verse 5. It says, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And so here you have the mighty Ahithophel. You have the, the, the king's most trusted military advisor and counselor and strategist. And he gives this bit of advice that seems good to Absalom. Absalom's nodding as Ahithophel is saying all this, going, yes, I agree with this. This is a good plan. We should do this. And the elders around him are listening to Ahithophel's plan and nodding their heads in agreement, saying, yes, this is good advice. We should do this. We need to go put an end to David. Uh, let's do what Ahithophel is saying. And, and then yet, at, after all this, Absalom steps back and he says, you know what, let's, let's get a second opinion on this. And he turns for the second opinion to a pretty unexpected source. He goes to Hushai, Hushai the archite, Hushai who Absalom knew had been in the past at least loyal to David. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 16 verse 17, Hushai comes up to Absalom and he says, long live the king. He's swearing allegiance to Absalom and Absalom responds to him with skepticism. He says, is, is this how you show loyalty to your king? Meaning to David? And so this man who nobody was really sure where his loyalties lay, and there was some good reasons to, to be skeptical of him, Absalom turns to him and says to, to Hushai, Hushai, what say you? And maybe at this point Absalom was saying, he may have some insight as to David's current state. He may have some, uh, some thoughts as to how we should best approach him. He may have insider knowledge that we don't have about where David is. And so let's double check with Hushai. But even still, this move is unexpected. Well, in verse 6, he calls Hushai. And Hushai comes to him. And Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time... The counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. This time, the, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says, not good is the counsel that Ahithophel has provided this time. The not good is at the front of the sentence in the Hebrew, which is emphasizing, emphatically him declaring, this is bad counsel, bad advice that you've received from Ahithophel. I picture Ahithophel in the corner drinking a cup of, of water or whatever and doing a spit take when he hears this, right? I mean, he's thinking to himself, who are you to, to contradict what I say? 
This is good advice. Ahithophel is not a dumb guy. He does this for a living. This is his expertise. And he's concluded, this is what we should do. And now you've got Hushai, this outsider, this guy that's come out of David's camp, who's come in and all of a sudden weaseled his way into the inner circle of Absalom. And now Absalom's second-guessing your advice. And now this guy not only is being heard by Absalom, but he's emphatically denying that your advice, which had just previously seemed great to Ahithophel, great to Absalom, and great to all the elder, elders, is, is now, quote-unquote, not good. It's a bold move from Hushai, but now Hushai was going to have to back it up. And that's exactly what he does with a masterful speech. And in this speech, what he does here is he does three things. First, he, he nullifies the counsel of Ahithophel. Second, he chips away at the fragile foundation of Absalom's confidence by maximizing Absalom's fears about his father, David. And then third, what he does is he buys David precious time that he needed to escape and regroup. Let's look more closely at this speech that he gives, starting in verse 8. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field beside your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. What Hushai does here, again, it's, it's masterful in the way that he answers every one of Ahithophel's points of advice to, to, uh, to Absalom here. And he provides a counterpoint to it. Take a look at verse 2. Ahithophel had said in verse 2 of David, He is weary and discouraged. We will throw him into a panic. Okay, so there's Ahithophel's point. Now, Hushai's counterpoint. Verse 8. Your father and his men are mighty men. And they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He's not panicked. He's ready for us. And he's enraged. Ahithophel, point, verses 2 through 3. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. And all the people will be at peace. Point. Counterpoint from Hushai. Behold, even now, David has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the men fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. In other words, Ahithophel, you think you're just going to be able to walk in there and, and take David and leave everybody else unharmed and they're going to just loyally follow you back here no they're they're loyal to david david's concealed david's protected and, and these are valiant men they're going to fight to the death and oh by the way absalom when they start killing some of your guys word's going to get back here and everybody here who's right now loyal to you they're going to lose their their loyalty they're going to lose their courage and their bravado here 
point-counterpoint. Ahithophel's point in verse 1. Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. Counterpoint from Hushai. But my counsel is this, that all Israel, not just 12,000, all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. Again, Ahithophel says, you don't need to go, king. Just stay here. Just give me 12,000 men. Give me a small force. I'll go and take care of this. Hushai's counterpoint is, no, 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 no. You need to get all of Israel. Gather all of your forces. Bring them to you. And in Absalom, you lead them out against your father, David. And so he's answered Ahithophel's counsel. And he's answered it in, in quite an astounding way, in a, in a wise way, as far as being cunning and, and answering these things with his own counterpoints. And it says then in verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. That statement to us doesn't hold a whole lot of weight right now because we know the rest of the story. But in that context, if you were there, if you heard them say that, it would have been utterly astounding. It would have been just amazing to hear the, the counsel of the mighty Ahithophel is undermined by this guy Hushai, who was a member of David's camp not just a, a year ago, but six months ago, three months ago, a month ago, a, a few weeks ago, he was coming out of David's camp. But we read the rest of it in verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Just to catch us up as far as the geography and what's going on in this chapter. Down here you've got Hebron. This is where Absalom had been. This is where he went to be installed as the uh, usurping king by his people that were loyal to him. Then you've got Jerusalem where David's palace was, where David was. David last week took off from Jerusalem and ended up right here by the fords of the Jordan River. And so he was awaiting word as to what he should do. Meanwhile, Absalom had moved into Jerusalem. And, and this is where our action is taking place right now. It's taking place in the palace. You've got Ahithophel, you've got Absalom, and you've got Hushai debating what to do right here while David is awaiting news here. At the end of our chapter, we're going to have David up here in the wilderness, and you're going to have Absalom up here as well. But this is just geographically, to give you an understanding of what's going on in Israel, this is the direction that the battle is, is heading right now. David's about to flee north. But first, Absalom has to decide what he's going to do. How is he going to respond? said that he's going to respond by trusting in the counsel of Hushai. A decision we realize in verse 14 was even out of the control of Absalom. Absalom thought he was making that decision of his own will, of his own accord, but really it was God ordaining things such that Absalom would make a decision that went against the wise counsel, the good counsel of Ahithophel, and bought into the deceiving counsel of Hushai. Our first point this morning is this. We need to acknowledge that God is wiser than the wisdom of men. God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Once more, Ahithophel was one of the most advanced, expert military advisors and strategists. He had the ears of kings. David had trusted him. Absalom had trusted him enough to bring him into his rebellion against David. And Ahithophel was confident in his counsel. And Absalom, as he heard Ahithophel's counsel, was, yes, confident as well, nodding in agreement, as were the other elders that were around him. 
But God demonstrated in this process, process that his wisdom was wiser than the wisdom of men. From a human perspective, Ahithophel's counsel was better than the counsel that God gave through Hushai. But from God's wisdom, from God's perspective, according to God's perfect plan and will, his wisdom was superior. Because ultimately, this was all about God getting the glory over man. The confounding of the wisdom of man. Yes, it's an an answer to David's prayer. When David said, make foolish the counsel of Ahithophel. This is the, the final manifestation of that. The final realization of that. But this is ultimately about God demonstrating that he's better. That his wisdom is greater. That he's superior to the wisdom of men. And he's done this in the past with rulers as well. Exodus chapter 14 verse 4. You have Pharaoh hardening his heart, and yet at the same time, God hardening the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart. And in verse 4, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God has long been in the business of demonstrating that his wisdom is superior to the wisdom of men. In fact, it's not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament that we read about that as well. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 18 through 25. That's that great passage where Paul says, for the wisdom of God, the, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. It's that great passage where Paul says, where's the wise? Where's the debater of the age? Has God not, not made foolish their wisdom. So we see even now that the the message of the cross, the gospel is God's wisdom triumphing over the wisdom of men, rendering the wisdom of men foolish. And so as you think about your own life, I wonder what your consistent sources of wisdom on a daily basis are in your life. I think we would all doctrinally agree and theologically agree that yes, our chief source of wisdom should be God and God's word. That yes, his wisdom is wiser than the wisdom of men, but practically as that works itself out in our daily lives, who are your most trusted counselors and advisors? Who fills your ear most regularly? Do you seek more wisdom on a daily basis from your favorite news channel than you do from the Lord? Do you pray daily for wisdom from God to navigate what he has in front of you for that day? See, when we, we don't acknowledge that God's wisdom is wiser than the wise, it's going to begin to produce some things within us that are not things that we want to mark us. When we trust in the wisdom of men over the wisdom of God, we begin to realize that, that we have in our lives, first, a, a fear. Because when that wisdom of men doesn't work out, we forget that God's wisdom, which is always working out, is ultimately for our good. But when our wisdom fails, when the wisdom of man fails us, we begin to become fearful of our circumstances, which can also lead second to anxiety. When we take our eyes off of God's sovereign wisdom, of his superior wisdom, and trust in our own wisdom to be able to to navigate life, and, and inevitably that will fail us, we become anxious. Or even when it's not failing us, we become anxious about when it will fail us. Another thing that trusting in the wisdom of man over the wisdom of God can produce in us is anger. We grow impatient over our circumstances, realizing that our wisdom is limited. That we can't achieve the things that we want to achieve according to the way we want to achieve them. And so we respond in anger. Another thing that it can produce within us is a a depression. 
our wisdom fails us. Our wisdom lets us down. And we've placed our confidence and our hope in that wisdom rather than in the transcendent and, and sovereign wisdom of God. And so it leaves us without hope. It leaves us in a state of despair, as we're going to even see later on in this chapter. But ultimately, the underlying thing that trusting in human wisdom over the wisdom of God produces within us is pride. Pride. We reject God's wisdom as a better instrument than our own. And put our confidence in ourselves, our confidence in our own intellect, our confidence in our own ability to to navigate things. Again, God is very clearly demonstrating the superiority of his wisdom through defeating the counsel of Ahithophel. There's no reason that Ahithophel's counsel should have been set aside. Absalom agreed with it. The elders agreed with it right then and there. He should have said, let's go, let's do this. But because God's wisdom trumps the wisdom of man, he used a foolish move from Absalom by saying, well, you know what, let's call Hushai and see what Hushai has to say about this to see that his counsel was ultimately followed. The counsel of Ahithophel, as David had prayed, had finally been confounded and made foolish. And now David needed to be clued in. And so the next step was bringing in the, the sons of Abiathar and Zadok, the, the Jonathan and, and Ahimaaz, and, and sending them to David to clue them in and to let them know what was going to happen so that they could prepare and, and take shelter. And so what they do there is, that, is they dispatch these guys to, to go with the message. And, and I picture this next section as a scene of like an action movie, right? You've got your, your two guys and they're on the run. And then all of a sudden somebody sees them in the shadows and goes to tell Absalom what's going on. And Absalom gets some of his soldiers, not knowing exactly what these men are up to, but he dispatches them to, to overtake them and, and to bring them back to him. Meanwhile, these men are on the run and they see that the soldiers are pursuing them and they're not sure what to do and they realize if they don't get to David, David and all of his followers are, are toast. Because if David is not clued in, it doesn't matter whose advice Absalom follows, Absalom's going to overtake them at the fords before they cross the, the river Jordan and, and flee into the wilderness and Absalom's going to overtake them and, and wipe them all out. And so as they're being hotly pursued by this band of soldiers to be arrested and taken into custody, they're looking around and, and in an act of desperation, they look and they find this woman who has a well and the woman says, quick, get in the well and take shelter here. And the woman then covers over the well and puts the grain over the top of it to make it look like it's been undisturbed for some time. And the soldiers come by her place and they say, hey, have you seen a couple of spies that are on the run? And she says, no, I haven't. And they go on to continue to look. They're unable to find them and they return back to the palace. It's an intense situation. It's a tense scene. Again, if they don't get to David, David's a sitting duck. But we have the advantage of knowing what's plainly stated in verse 14, don't we? For the Lord had ordained, the Lord had ordained, had sovereignly decreed that he was going to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel all the way through carrying it fully out to these men getting to King David with the message that David needed to hear. Why? So that, verse 14, the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This verse is, is, is pretty astounding. If we'll take off our familiarity with it, if, if we'll set aside our lenses that are so familiar with the story and say, God is essentially saying here, he's ordaining the details of these events in order to defeat Absalom, in order to bring harm upon Absalom. God's sovereignty is intervening in these plans. Because right now we look at Absalom and it's this age-old conundrum of why are the evil prospering? It's something that Job understood, that, that Job questioned. It's something that David questioned as well. You look at the Psalms, and how many times does David say in the Psalms, How long, O Lord? 
before you step in and put an end to what's going on. I mean, Absalom has the palace, has the throne, has the power, has the people. He's in Jerusalem. David's on the run. It looks like everything is is lining up in, in Absalom's favor. And yet, even as all of these details are falling into place, God is orchestrating every single one of them and ordaining every single one of these details in order to ultimately bring harm upon Absalom, in order to ultimately defeat Absalom. These two men could have easily been discovered. These soldiers could have said, hey, what about that well? Is, is there anything in that well besides just water? But as it was, God was protecting them ordaining their efforts to bring about the demise of Absalom. I recognize that in this room, we all probably have different understandings of the extent to which God's sovereignty invades and has to do with our daily decisions that we make. But there's one thing that we all have to agree upon. With a text like this, it's impossible to to deny that God is doing more than any of us are truly aware of. There are events taking place right now all around us in our lives that are part of God orchestrating things toward a particular outcome that as of now we are completely unaware of. Our second point this morning is this. We need to give God glory in the details. We need to give glory to God in the details of our lives. God's will is never thwarted by man's opposition. It's always going to come to fruition. And even when you look at your life and it seems like things are out of control or chaotic or at odds with your plans, God is still in in control, still calculated, and still sovereignly working his plans out to perfection. We may be aware of this in the the big things in our lives, but how aware are we of this on the, the daily details of our lives? I mean, just in your commute to get here this morning, God was orchestrating details to make sure that you arrive from point A to point B safely? Are we mindful of those things? I think we're most mindful of those things when we can look back on significant events in our lives. Like when Amanda and I found out that we were having twins, and then the the doctor said, you know what, you need to go see a specialist because this is a high-risk pregnancy. And so we go and we sit down in the office with the specialist, and the specialist proceeds to spend 45 minutes, 45 minutes, I kid you not, telling us everything that could go wrong with this pregnancy. Twin to twin transfusion syndrome, all of these things, even to the point of him saying, you know, it might get to the point where you need to be care flighted to Los Angeles to have surgery done to go in in utero and and repair blood vessels and different things going on. And and we're sitting there like deers in the headlights, still trying to recover just from the fact that we're having two babies and not still trying to recover from the fact that we're having another baby and then two more babies and not just one, and here's this guy telling us everything that could go wrong, and I'm sitting there realizing I can't control any of this. It's totally out of my control. And then at the end of 45 minutes, he tacks on, you know what, but the the number of people that this happens to is just a very small percentage. As though that makes me feel any better, right? And then after that, every two weeks, we were in with her specialist doctor for an ultrasound to make sure that nothing was going wrong with this pregnancy. And every two weeks, it was that moment of panic and, and holding your breath to make sure that, that there were two heartbeats still, to make sure that, that the babies were growing the way that they should be and that they were on schedule and that there wasn't anything wrong. And then at the same time, they're telling us, be prepared for an early labor. Be prepared for these babies to spend a significant amount of time in the NICU. 
Oh, and beyond that, we had the, the glorious reality of Obamacare for our insurance at the time. And guess what all the doctors were telling us after we found out we were pregnant with twins? Sorry, we're not accepting Obamacare. Do you know how much it costs to pay out of pocket for delivering twin babies? I do, because I had to look it up at that point in time. And, and so all of these things are taking place. And, and all of these details that need to be worked out. And I was sitting there going, I can't control any of this. And yet now as I look back at it, I see how God was sovereign over every single one of those details. I knew Psalm 139. I knew that he was knitting them together. I knew that he was forming their inward parts. I knew all of those things up here, but, but the practical outworking of it, I was, uh, quite honestly, there, there were seasons during that, that stretch where I was anxious because I was worried, I was concerned, and I, I knew I couldn't control it, and yet God was sovereign through the whole thing. Or when I met Amanda, we were born on opposite sides of the country. I was born in Philadelphia. She was born in San Diego. I grew up in Texas. She grew up in San Diego. I went to go to college in Memphis, Tennessee. She went to college at the Master's University. I ended up leaving that college in Tennessee and, and coming back home. And I spent a semester at home not really know, knowing what to do with my life other than I, I wanted to go into ministry. I remembered my youth pastors had gone to the Master's University. So I said, I'm going to go to Master's. I applied, got into Master's. First semester out there, I didn't know who Amanda was, second semester back, school's getting ready to start, I'm sitting there going, you know what, I'm going to go back home for a weekend before getting ready to, to jump in because I'd gone out early, and I decided at the last second not to go home for whatever reason. And then there was this back-to-school event, and I'm sitting in my dorm room, not wanting to go to this event at all, planning to just skip it, and a friend of mine comes in, and he says, PJ, come on, we're going down, and I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll come down for five or ten minutes. I walked around for a while. I didn't see anything that was interesting to me, and I, I turned around to walk back up to my dorm room, and that same friend said, hold on for a second, PJ, come over here. I want to introduce you to some people, and my wife was standing in that group. I, I didn't orchestrate any of that. I wasn't going to go to that party. I wasn't going to be even on campus during that. I was going to be in Memphis, according to my plans, according to my wisdom. And yet God was ordaining and orchestrating the details of everything. Down to who I was walking down to that party with and where I was walking. And the fact that on my way back up to my dorm room, I happened to walk by him such that he said, Hey, PJ, hold on for a second. Why don't you come over here? I mean, those details are not details that I planned. They're, they're not details that I ordained or orchestrated, and yet God was there in the details so that he could work out his will in my life. There are things happening to us and through us right now that we're going to look back on in a year, two years, three years, 10 years, 15 years, and go, wow, it's amazing how God was working in and through that. And my guess is all of you have something in your life that you can point back to a similar way that, that God has been ordaining and working in the details of your life. And it's foolish for us to think, well, he does that in the big things, but not on the, the, the small things. And some people look at me and they say, well, you know, Pastor PJ, doesn't that just make us puppets on the string? You know what? If I'm a puppet on the string, I'm okay with that because I can't feel the strings. But look back at those times in your life. And I, I want to encourage you, create your own list of how God has worked in your life. Go through that and, and list out the details so that you can point back and see how God was sovereign in the details of your life, the way that he was sovereign in the details of, of bringing this woman right at the right time to say, hey, I've got this well, jump in the well. That wasn't by accident. It wasn't by accident that Absalom sent the, the two worst hide-and-seek players ever to go look for these guys. This is all God orchestrating this and ordaining this according to his plan. We need our own list. Why? Number one, it's going to prompt you to worship God when you look back at those things. 
It's going to prompt you to glorify him. And that's what he wants. That's why he's sovereign over our lives. That's why he's orchestrating these things. Because he wants us to worship him. In that second, it's going to prompt you to give him thanks for these things. Third, it's going to give you great confidence in his plans. That he's working even when you don't realize it. It's going to give you confidence during times of of suffering and pain. To remember back to how he's been faithful to you. And because he is immutable and unchanging, he's always going to remain faithful to you. But this list is also forth going to give others confidence in God's plans. As you're able to come alongside them and say, can I tell you a way that God's worked in my life? And as you unfold that, as you lay that out, they're going to sit there and they're going to say, wow, that's, that's amazing. God really is sovereign. God really is in control. And it's going to give them an opportunity to have confidence. But finally, it's also going to give them an opportunity to worship God with you. To praise him for how he's been faithful to you as well. Verse 21 in our text. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, arise and go quickly over the water. For thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him. And they crossed the Jordan. And by daybreak, not one of them was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey went off home to his own city, set his house in order and hung himself, hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. After this, David flees across the Jordan River and he sets up his camp and then eventually Absalom does pursue him and ends up opposite him and the the battle lines are drawn up for the battle that will take place in chapter 18. But I want to focus more on uh, verse 23 there. The reaction of all this to all this of of Ahithophel. Because in so many ways, Ahithophel encapsulates the end of all who put their confidence in the wisdom of man over the wisdom of God. Because when that wisdom fails, there's nowhere to turn but to despair and hopelessness that leads to tragedy. This was a man in Ahithophel who had made a life for himself. He was at the top of his game. He was the trusted advisor, not just of one king, but now of multiple kings. He was a a military strategist who was unparalleled in his ability to evaluate things and to give counsel and to give advice. And when he looked back at, at what had happened, there was nothing that he had done that was a failure, that was wrong. It was not as though he could point back to something and say, well, here's where I screwed up in my counsel, so I just need to adjust that, and next time I'll do it better. He had been on his A game with his advice to Absalom. His advice, even the narrator says, was good counsel. Absalom agreed with it. The the elders agreed with it. And yet it had failed. This guy, Hushai, had undermined him. Ahithophel's wisdom wasn't enough anymore. And the king had chosen to go with this man, Hushai. That hopelessness, that despair, that feeling that everything that that Ahithophel had ever identified in and trusted in was all of a sudden cut out from under him. That's the stark reality of everyone who lives without an eye towards the sovereignty and wisdom of God. 
unless our hope is anchored in being a servant of a sovereign God, we're going to grow disenchanted and despairing of the, the world that we live in. Unless our identity and our hope is rooted in a sovereign God, our lives are a fruitless endeavor. Point number three this morning is this. Recognize the despair of a godless existence. Recognize the despair of a godless existence, which is what we find in Ahithophel. The problem with a godless existence at its foundation is that the things that we put our hope in and our trust in, when we aren't putting our hope and our trust in a sovereign God, they're things that are going to let us down because they're things that are going to be prone to change. There's nothing that this world offers us that is immutable, unchanging, eternal, sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, compassionate, kind, patient, and good. Nothing that this world offers us. What this world holds out to us and offers us and says, build your life on this, hope in this, trust in this. These are all things that can collapse. These are all just foundations that amount to nothing more than a house of cars that can be demolished at the slightest change in the direction of the the wind. What are some of the things that the world builds their lives upon? Uh, Number one, a, a job. That was Ahithophel. He had built his identity, his existence, his hope on his role as the counselor to the king. And now that was totally undermined. His counsel had been rejected. He had been set aside. He had been discarded as no longer necessary to the equation. And because he didn't have a relationship with God and a confidence in God, he had nothing left to hope in. It's like uh, somebody who's worked their way to the top of their field 30 years, 40 years, and all of a sudden there's a takeover of the company and he's deemed unnecessary and cast aside and now he's got nothing left. His identity had been in his career and now that his career is gone, he's left on the unemployment search and, and, and looking around realizing that, that he's got nothing to offer the world and the world has nothing to offer him. Maybe it's your health. You've taken really good care of your body. You've taken two apples a day to keep multiple doctors away, right? But then you're given a diagnosis that is outside of the realm of your ability to to eat well or rub an essential oil anywhere on yourself or burn any incense or or whatever you want to do, right? You've been given a diagnosis that says this is beyond your control at this point. Now all of a sudden, your identity is, I take care of my body. My health is my idol. It's, It's everything to me is now totally rendered meaningless and useless and you've got nothing to hope in anymore. Maybe it's your friends that you've built your life in, your your confidence in is, is your inner circle, your fellowship that you have. We've all been betrayed by friends, let down by friends, had friends abandoned us when we needed them. Maybe it's possessions or wealth. And that can change in the blink of an eye. Abilities, what I'm capable of doing, my family, all of these things can be taken away from us in a matter of seconds. And if that's where we put our whole trust and confidence, the way that Ahithophel had said, my identity is in what I do. My identity is in what I can bring to the table with my own wisdom. When that's gone, we've got nothing left. The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ, and I I don't say that flippantly. 
It truly is Christ. Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live. It's not my dreams. It's not my ambitions. It's not my goals. It's not my, my family. It's not my job. It's not my intelligence. It's not my health. It's not my friends. It's not any of these things anymore. Those things have all been crucified. I don't live for those things anymore. Can I enjoy them? Yes, I can enjoy them as blessings from God, but I don't live for them. I don't hold on to them and say, I have to have any of these things. I hold on to Christ now because Christ now lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the only mindset, the only existence, the only foundation that will not let us down, that will not fail us, is the one that's built upon Christ. The one that understands that this world is not our home and its pleasures are not our hope. So that we can say, if I lose my job, I'm still in Christ. If I lose my health, I'm still in Christ. If I lose my friends, I'm still in Christ. My possessions, I'm in Christ. Wealth, in Christ. My abilities, I'm still in Christ. My family, I'm still in Christ. And it's not that those things wouldn't hurt. It's not that those things wouldn't be hard. This isn't a call to a slap happy, stupid grin on your face and just walking through going, it's okay, I've got Jesus. You are going to mourn and you are going to weep and you are going to hurt and you are going to suffer. And yet there's going to be an abiding hope and confidence in the unfading, imperishable inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by God's power for salvation, ready to be revealed at the end. And that hope is going to allow you to navigate the suffering and the, the disappointments of this life, knowing that you've got a hope that's immovable in Christ. Ahithophel didn't have that. Paul did. As he's sitting in jail thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be drug out of my cell today and, and beheaded or not. Paul writes this to the Philippians. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. Not to live is to plant churches. Not to live is to be a pastor. Not to live is to be a shepherd. Not to live is to be any of the, those are all great things, wonderful things, excellent things. And yet Paul said, for me to live is Christ. That's the only thing that's for sure in all of this equation is that daily my life is to be lived for Christ. Ahithophel had built his life on a house of cards. And when that was exposed, he was left to, with nothing to hope in and no confidence to hold on to. And the conclusion that he makes is tragic, but it's logical. It's logical. A godless existence offers us no hope. Why do you think that the suicide rate is so high right now? As the, the depravity of our world escalates, and it is escalating at a rapid rate, is it not? The world can even look around and recognize these things, but the problem is the world is left without any conclusion other than, than to say this, this life in this world is vain. It's meaningless. It's hopeless. It's pointless. And so why even bother? And so we need to go out, men, all the more with the message of the hope of Christ. So we think back, there's no reason 
for Ahithophel's counsel to have been ignored. There's no reason that Absalom should have gotten a second opinion. There's no reason that that second opinion should have come from Hushai. And then after receiving that second opinion, there's no reason that Absalom should have said, yeah, you know what, that sounds like a better plan, let's do that. That is, there's no reason unless there was a sovereign God whose wisdom was trumping the wisdom of men behind all of this. The wisdom of man makes a lousy guide. I'm thankful for that wisdom. Thankful for the wisdom of a sovereign God in my own life. I'm thankful, very thankful, that my life has not worked out the way that I wanted it to. I'm so thankful that I've not gotten all of my desires. So thankful that my plans have not all come to fruition. So grateful for that. Because if they would, I'm afraid to see what that picture would have looked like. God knows better. He's a much better lead. He's a much better guide. And his wisdom is greater than mine. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for that reality, that your wisdom is greater than ours, and that you are sovereign, that you are ordaining the events of our lives. God, we're foolish to think that we are holding the reins when we have to confess that the breath that fills our lungs is a sovereign gift from you. Lord, if, if we're to, to confess that, what is there that we wouldn't be willing to say that you are the one that's ordaining and orchestrating these things? And we know from passages like Romans chapter 8 that you are ordaining and orchestrating all of these things for our good, which is ultimately that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to trust in your wisdom when it butts up against our wisdom. God, help us to, to die to ourselves, to die to our intellect, to die to our logic, to die to our desire to be in control and to understand and to surrender to you and to your guidance and to your wisdom and to your perfection and to your sovereignty. Lord, help us to be men who trust you with everything that we are. Allow us to look back on our lives and see how you've been faithful to lead us and guide us and, and ordain the, the events of our lives to bring us into the position in where we are right now and allow us even right now, even during the day that we spend today, to see your sovereign hand at work in ordaining and orchestrating and guiding and leading us today. And Lord, may we be quick to turn and give you praise and thanksgiving for these things. Father, we love you. We thank you for the day that's in front of us. May we use it well for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.